right, so we will be in Luke 20 tonight, and I will do my best to pick up where Pastor Mike and Pastor Steve have left off. The last couple of months they've gone through the book of Luke, and they are now in the Passion Week of Christ. We're in the Passion Week of Christ in Luke. Um, Jesus is in Jerusalem now. He approached lowly on a donkey, if you heard Pastor Mike's message on that. And people were shouting, Hosanna, save now, uh, but for the wrong reasons. We will come to later find out. They think miracles Jesus are performing is preparing the way and getting him ready to establish his earthly kingdom and take charge over the Romans. They are seeking an earthly king and an earthly kingdom. Jesus is here for a different reason. We see throughout Luke that Jesus is demonstrating his authority. It's a common theme through there. Pastor Steve preached on it a lot last week. And in fact, Luke has two parables on authority. And then he is now in the temple. He has cleansed the temple, shown his authority in the temple, cleansed it of the vendors, making profit from it. Now he's teaching to the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, in the temple courts. You can see that as Jesus comes onto the scene in the gospel, um, as soon as he does, the Jewish leaders do not like him. They ask him, whose authority does John the Baptist come on? And Jesus tells them, is John the Baptist from heaven or is he from earth? From men. And this puts them into a trap of their own words. If they answer John the Baptist is from heaven, then they should believe Jesus because of what John the Baptist has been preaching. He says things like, The one who is coming, I am not fit to untie the straps on his sandals. He must increase and I must decrease. We hear those sayings of John the Baptist. So if they're going to say he's from God, then they must believe in Christ. But if they say from men, well, he has this large following. John the Baptist and Jesus soon will, but, and Jesus now does. He has this large following, and the people will not be happy. Because, like I said previously, they're expecting him to be their earthly king. So they will not let that happen. So he traps them in their own words. They quiet down, and then it proceeds to say he's going to teach this parable. So Luke 20 explains this vineyard. To get a better idea of this vineyard, you're going to need to read Isaiah 5, 1-7. So make a note of that. We're not going to turn there now. We're going to get into that a little bit later. But Isaiah 5, 1-7 is going to be this imagery that they're going to start thinking of in their minds when Jesus teaches this parable. This is a Jewish context parable. It's written to the Jewish leaders. The Jewish people would be well aware of this vineyard he is talking about. Let's go to Luke 20, 9 to 19, and we're going to do our best to, to read through it multiple times. The first time we're going to go through and read it, then we're, there's going to be an explanation, an interpretation, and an application of it. Luke 20 and verse 9. It says, But he began to tell the people this parable. Jesus says this, A man planted a vineyard and leased it to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him his share of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 11. And he proceeded to send another slave. 
But they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third. But this one, they too, wounded and threw out. Now the owner of the vineyard said, What am I to do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they discussed with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and put these vine growers to death, and he will give the vineyard to others. However, when they heard this, they said, May it never happen. But Jesus looked at them and said, This is a statement that has been written. A stone which the builders rejected. This has become the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him at that very hour, and yet they feared the people, for they were aware that he had spoken this parable against them. So they watched him closely and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they can hand him over to the jurisdiction and authority of the governor. So, the explanation of this. I think we need to be clear of what's going on here. I'll briefly briefly run through this. We start off with verse 9. An owner of a vineyard leases it out to vine growers. Okay, so that would be what what they call tenant farming. We call it leasing. People that are skilled to work the land but can't own the land. They don't have the money or for whatever reason they don't own the land. But the owner lets them work the land, do what they want with it. All that he requires is that you pay him and whatever crop, produce you're growing. So that's this contract that they've made between the two of them. Then in verse 10 and 12, it's now time to collect the payment. The owner has gone away. It says he went away for a long time. They made the agreement. He left. Now it's the harvest time. He's still gone. Months have been passed. He sends for the money to be collected. And then here... Each time he sends his slaves to get his cut, each slave is sent away and rejected and beaten. Luke recounts the parable each time of one that's getting rejected. The punishment is getting worse each time. Now this account is in the Synoptic Gospels, so it's going to be recorded three times. And in Matthew, it says each one is killed. But Luke is treating it differently. He is saying that each time, each slave is getting treated worse and worse until a final hardening, which we will get to later. But keep that in mind. That's going on here. Then, in verse 13, the landowner sends his son, thinking maybe they will treat him differently. In verse 14, the tenants discussed among themselves behind the scenes that if they killed the heir, they could possibly receive the land. The listeners of this parable would have thought to the Jewish Talmud. The people thought that if the landowner died, the son would be the heir. That if they killed the son, there was no inheritance of the land, the land would be theirs. Or, if the the owner was still alive, the person that they would have killed, and if the land would have been um, non-disputed for three years, they would have had ownership of the land. So this is also what the Jewish people who are being taught could have been thinking during this time. So keep that in mind as well. So what are they going to do? Either way, they wanted the inheritance. They're going to kill the son. Verse 15 describes the gruesome death of the son 
and then proposes the question, what shall the owner do? He's killed the slaves. Now they've killed his son. What is the owner going to do? What's his right? What is, what's he going to do to these people? And Jesus here asks the question and then gives the answer to the question. Verse 16. He describes the coming vindication of the father, of, of the son by the father. He puts the tenant farmers to death. The father does. He gives the vineyard to someone else. And when the people heard this, they comprehended. The Greek word for that was okuo in verse 16. This means they comprehended what they heard. So it's the same in Ephesians 1.13, the same word when it says, In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you listened to the gospel when you first heard it, you comprehended it, but it's not enough to just comprehend it, you believed it. And then you were, you were sealed with the Spirit. That comprehension that we had of the gospel, this is the comprehension that those listeners had of this parable. They understood the meaning. And when they understand what it means, they shout, may it never be. Exclamation. That exclamation point is appropriate there. May it never be. May what never be? May it never be that they kill prophets? May it never be that they reject and kill a current prophet or reject and kill the son. Or may it never be that this vineyard will be taken from their authority. I think all of those. The chief priests, scribes, elders, Sadducees, and Pharisees don't think that they would kill priests if they were presented with them in their time. Just like their, unlike their ancestors. The Jewish leaders thought that if they saw a true prophet from God, there's no way they would reject him. But what did Jesus tell them in Matthew 23? Go ahead and turn with me to Matthew 23, verse 29. Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders here, again. And he says in Matthew 23, verse 29, Woe to you, Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs for the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in, the shedding, in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You snakes, you offspring of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? The Jewish leaders here are referring to the slaves, the Old Testament prophets. In verses 9 to 12, this is a depiction of Old Testament prophets. Think back to 1870 B.C. and 1 Kings. The prophet Elijah is on the scene. It's him and it's King Ahab. And they're worshiping the prophets of Baal. They are King... Or Elijah is saying to them, if God is real, follow God. If Baal is real, follow Baal. But quit this in-between stuff. So let's have a test. He says, let's test. Put an offering on an altar, and whichever God lights it on fire, that God is true. So what does King Ahab and the prophets of Baal, what do they do? They put it on the altar. It doesn't work. They try to cut themselves, 
please their gods, try again, doesn't work. Elijah drenches it in water. It's covering in the, it's, it's flowing in the trench beneath him. And what does God do? Catches it on fire. And Elijah's like, look, here's the altar. It's on fire. This is the one true God. Listen to me. Repent. What does King Ahab do? Does he see the miracle and repent? No. He has people go and try to kill Elijah. He runs away. Think a little bit forward now in time to 1 Samuel. So this is even before the kings. Well, how did, we even, how did Israel even get kings in the first place? In 1 Samuel, I think this might be the saddest account that the Lord speaks in the whole Bible. Every time I read it, sad. <laughs> Samuel has led the nation to repentance in previous chapters. He's recaptured the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines and defeated them. And now Samuel's growing older. His sons aren't doing what's pleasing in the sight of the Lord. And the chief leaders, the, el- the leaders of the Jewish nation now are coming to Samuel and they're saying, we don't want you anymore. Your sons are not like you. You're not in your youth like you used to be. Give us a king. And Samuel, knowing that they didn't need a king, they needed God as their king, and that God could work through prophets for them to just have their great nation and take his name throughout the, the nations, all they needed was God. And here they are asking for a king. And this crushes Samuel. And here's where God makes his statement in 1 Samuel 8, 7-8. It says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people regarding all that they say to you. Wanting a king. Because they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have abandoned me and served other gods. So they are doing to you as well. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall warn them strongly and tell them of the practice of the king who will reign over them. So this teaches us a few things. Number one, God was patient with them time and time again with Israel rejecting prophets. In fact, he even gave them what they want. We don't just want a prophet anymore. We want a king. We want someone to lead us. Someone that's going to protect us. But they didn't want the prophets. They want the king. What does God do in his grace? Gives them a king. And even more in his grace and mercy. He gives them great kings. David, Solomon, Hezekiah. Some great kings. But God was patient with them. But in that, he gave them everything he needed Israel needed to be successful. They didn't need a king. Okay, now let's go to Isaiah 5.3. Go to Isaiah 5 now. In the Matthew account, as you turn to Isaiah, the Matthew account of this parable depicts the vineyard, but it also tells on how the vineyard has a watchtower and a vine press. A grape, a, a wine press, excuse me, a wine press. And that's to add to more of how well this vineyard was. It had all the things to be successful. In Isaiah 5, 
Now you can read verses 1 to, three, 1 to 2, but here I'm going to pick up in verse 3 and 4. And it says, And now you inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? It's a rhetorical question. Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So God did not put Israel in an empty field and say, play ball. He gave them the baseballs, the bats, the mitts, the helmets, the baselines, the stadium, the umpires, the coaches, the rule book, lights. He gave them it all to be successful. All they had to do was play the game by the rules. But they continue to reject. They continue to reject the prophets. And this is the saddest reality of it all is that in rejecting the prophets, they ultimately reject the final authority in God. They're not rejecting the prophets, they're rejecting God. In this parable, when you reject the slave, you reject the owner. When you reject the prophet, you reject God. Not only are they rejecting the son but they're rejecting the authority of God who sent the Son. Why is it when someone offers you a plate of food and you don't like it that they feel so offended? It's not because you didn't just like the food. It's because they feel like you don't like them. You rejected them, not just their food. This is the same situation. So now the parable shifts from the prophets to the Son. And the owner in this um, in verse 12, 13, is using this son, my be- the language, my beloved son. God used similar language at Jesus' baptism and transfiguration. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. But what did the Jewish leaders do to Jesus, whom God sent, that the vine growers did to the son that was sent in the parable, and that was plot to reject and kill the son. The Jewish leaders are clearly rejecting God by rejecting Jesus, who is king. So therefore, they're rejecting the kingdom. Ironically enough, saying that they would never reject the prophets or reject the kingdom. Well, here they are rejecting the son himself. And therefore, the kingdom that they've so looked forward to physically, but here it was to be given spiritually. Now we know we're not in the kingdom yet, but we will be one day. But here the now, what is the ultimate thing they're rejecting? And that is authority. Being, being suspicious as a Jewish leader in this time of a false prophet was not wrong. If you were a false prophet, you should have examined to make sure that this Jesus was true. That was your job, to protect your people. Examine. They should have. They had these titles. Scribes, priests. These were titles, jobs that needed to be done that God commanded to have. They are leaders of the Jewish religion, which is the true religion at this time. And remember, when they comprehended the parable, 
they knew it was about them. They felt attacked. They did not want the authority that they had, that God had given them, to be taken from them. They comprehended that Jesus was saying, I'm going to take this authority from you. And they comprehended that. And they said, no. They knew. In verse eight, uh, 19, they knew he was talking about them. They wanted the authority for themselves. And they're presented with, this, with Jesus, who is taking this authority and is showing it to be his. And so they have two options. Number one, they can lay down their authority in their own lives. In their religion, in their beliefs, in their value system. They can lay it down and they can believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Or, number two, they can try to get rid of him by rejecting him and killing him. And how sad it was that they saw the Messiah before them, the fulfillment of their law that they've studied their whole lives. And they've said time and time again, we would not do this, and yet they kill Jesus. So now, tonight, you sit here. You're listening at home. And the question lies in this statement. Who has the authority in your life? Is it you or is it God? Have you at one point laid down your arms, recognizing that you were a sinner and that you had no way of doing it yourself? No good works, nothing that you could do, no job title that you had. And that you needed to repent and trust in this Jesus that has died for your sins. Who has the authority in your life? That's a one-time decision. Because there's only two people in this world. They're not Jews and Gentiles. They're not Jewish leaders and others. They're saved and unsaved. The same truth was there in the parable's original context to the Jewish people. This was to a Jewish context. But the same truth is unilaterally. If you reject Jesus, as it says in verse 18, you will be crushed. But the good news is, Jesus is not just a stumbling block. He can be the cornerstone. And in fact, for most of you here, He is your cornerstone. And praise God for that, that we are surrounded now by these people who've trusted in Jesus and have made Him the cornerstone in their lives and that He is the foundation of all that you do. But think about God's grace and patience in this. The same God that was patient with Israel time after time, prophet after prophet, is the same God that is patient with your friend that doesn't know Jesus with your mother or father or son or daughter or neighbor or cousin or coworker or boss or our nation's leader. The same God that is patient time and time again is also now patient with all of mankind unto salvation. And he's placing things in their lives, possibly you, to be that opportunity for them to trust in Christ. 
So know that God is patient with those people as you continue to pray for them. To conclude, I want to touch on the phrase in here, we'll give the vineyard to others. In verse 16, Luke is painting this picture of authority. The parable is all about authority. What authority did the nation of Israel have? They had the authority to be custodians of God's truth. God was working through the nation of Israel. But now, God is not currently working through the nation of Israel. Like he said in this parable, this is prophetic. He has taken it from the hands of the Jewish leaders and now given it temporarily to the apostles here. And he talks about this. He says in Matthew 16, 18, Upon this rock I will build my church. He says that to Peter. Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore all you nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul regards us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. There's all of Ephesians 3 that talks about how Gentiles are now in this mystery, the stewards and and the custodians and the people that are bringing God's name to the nations. Does this mean the church has replaced Israel? By no means. Does this mean God is finished with Israel? No. Zechariah 8, Romans 9 to 11, and more passages describe a time when the fullness of the Gentiles will be here and God will restore a remnant of, out of the nation of Israel. But now, for the time being, it has been given to the apostles and that has now trickled down through the church to you. But before that, we must ask ourselves... What is our church now doing to obey this command? In John 4.35, it says the fields are white for harvest. It is now the church. We are the ones taking his name to the nations. Is our church doing this? We need to constantly be evaluating as a collective body the church is this our mission? What is the church's mission statement? Have you read it? Do you know it? And are we living it? Is Sunday school aligned with this? Sunday service, Sunday nights, Wednesday, Grace Bible Day Camp, children's ministry, valet, sound booth, everything we do here, does it have the bigger meaning of obeying what God has commanded us? Are we aimed at growing one another and advancing the gospel together as a church? And in 1 Corinthians 4, we are called stewards of the gospel. So, not all, so it, it's more personal than this. You are entrusted to be God's custodian of the truth. You are entrusted with it. And God has given us the authority to preach his name now. He has given us the Holy Spirit to empower and teach us. Just like the vineyard has the watchtower and the wine press and the Matthew account, okay, God does not leave us without any knowledge or ability to do it. He gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us. So you're empowered for this command. Think about how amazing that is. 
the God who saved us and gives us the command and gives us the ability to do it through the Holy Spirit. So much to be worshipped, filled in. Are you taking this lightly or are you brushing this off? Do you say, I place my faith in Jesus? I'm good. But if that is you, ask yourself the question, positionally, who has the authority in your life? If you have given up your authority, you've turned from your old way of life, your sin, you've placed your faith in Jesus, now He has the authority, you've done that. Okay, so now live in that positional truth. Live in that command. Be engaged in the church for gospel purposes. And be engaged in the church to grow in Christ-likeness with one another. Is Jesus your cornerstone? Or is he your stumbling block? Now, if you've answered, he's your cornerstone. Be faithful to the vineyard and producing fruit that he requires. Be in prayer for that. Seek to be involved in the church to do that collectively. Are you obeying his authority and the power he's given to you to preach the good news and make disciples in the church? Let's pray. God, thank you for this night. Thank you for the truth that you have revealed in your word. Thank you that you are the God who has authority and that you call the shots, but that you are perfect and loving and gracious. And so in that, you give us the Holy Spirit. You give us a desire to do your will and to do what you want. Lord, I pray that you help us to obey your command. I pray that you help us to always keep reminding ourselves what our purpose is, always keep reminding ourselves that we've given up our authority and that Jesus has the authority and now we must obey him. Lord, I pray that you help to grow us to be more like him. Use the discipleship in this church to help us become more like Christ and in doing so, proclaiming his name to the nations and obeying the great commission that you've given us. I pray, Lord, that we continue to seek people who have not given up their authority, who have not submitted to Jesus. Lord, I pray that you might open their hearts to the gospel. I pray that you give us opportunities as individuals to speak the truth into their lives. I pray that you might do that this week with Grace Bible Day Camp, Junior. pray that you allow not just the campers who might not be old enough to understand in preschool and kindergarten, but that you might allow opportunities to reach parents and to reach families and homes. Lord, I pray that you continue to use Grace Church and Mentor as a church that obeys this, obeys Christ when he tells us to work the fields. Lord, I just pray for wisdom now as, as we learn how to do that practically. Pray for the pastors. We thank you for their leadership in that. Thank you that they are faithful in their own personal lives and faithful to the church here in the service in making sure that we are adequately taught. Lord, I pray that we continue to teach one another and we continue to keep on the forefront of our minds that every time we serve in this local church that we're doing it for a bigger purpose than to just park a car or to just teach a kid. Lord, I pray that you continue to work in this church. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.